evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to the forum. Can you hear me? Good. Um, my name is Beth Hannon. I'm the director of the forum. Uh, apologies to those of you who have heard me say this before. I guess the way to stop me is to donate to us lots of money. So the forum's a non-profit organization, and the reason we're able to keep going is because lovely, generous human beings like yourselves donate to us. Um, you can find a link to our Just Giving page uh, on our website, and if you would like to support us, we will be incredibly generous. Uh, we will be incredibly grateful, rather, for your generosity. Um, we put on events like this once a week. Uh, they're always free, at, um, they're always open to everyone, and we think putting philosophy in a t into a public forum like this is really important. So please help us continue doing that. Um, on our website too, you'll find a huge backlog of podcasts of our previous events. Um, we've been doing them for quite some time now, so there's a lot to get your teeth into there. Uh, a couple of housekeeping issues. This is being recorded for a podcast too, so be aware if you ask a question that your voice will be on the podcast. And do wait for the roving microphone to find you um, uh, so that your voice gets recorded too. And uh, if you could turn off the volume on your phone, that would be really appreciated. Um, you can keep your phone on, though, and you can live tweet if that's your thing. Uh, we have our own hashtag, LSE Forum. If you want to join the conversation there, you're more than welcome. Um, this event, I should say, is also being co-sponsored by the Royal Institute of Philosophy, and so we're very grateful for, them, for their support, too. Uh, right, that's more than enough for me. Let me hand you over to tonight's panel. Thank you. Thank you, Beth, and thank you to all of you for coming to this event on pragmatism. I'm Claire Moriarty, and I'm a Fellow for Public Philosophy here at the Forum. So, pragmatism. I'm sure there are many for whom the words pragmatic and philosophy have no business in the same sentence. In fact, many of the things pragmatism is known to reject, overly abstract thinking, fixation over semantics, obsession with logical insularity, these are often regarded as some of the classic traits of professional philosophers and of professional philosophy. Though there's a history of pragmatist thinking that many would argue reaches back into very early and possibly ancient philosophy, there was also a distinct movement of pragmatist philosophical thought that emerged in its most powerful form in America at the end of the 19th century. This group of philosophers had a significant influence on almost all domains of philosophy, but perhaps especially in their novel ideas on truth and meaning. A new focus on doing what works dominated their thought and provided a new roadmap for philosophical inquiry. This evening, we're going to try and touch on some old and new takes on the pragmatist philosophical project. We'll look at the historical roots of pragmatism and some of the central figures from early American pragmatism. We'll also look at pragmatism as an approach in politics and political philosophy. And we'll see how pragmatism works in liberation and activist projects in a discussion of feminist pragmatism. So to do this, we've invited some experts on these different areas of pragmatism. Paniel Reyes Cardenas is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the People's Autonomous University of Puebla State in Mexico. Uh, Matthew Festenstein is a Professor of Politics at the University of York. Clara Fisher is an EU Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at the Centre for Gender, Feminisms and Sexualities and Co-Director of the Dewey Studies Research Project at UCD. All have work out or forthcoming on pragmatism, so Paniel has ideas in development, essays on the history of philosophy, Clara is the editor of a special edition of Contemporary Pragmatism coming out next year called John Dewey for Critical Political Times. And Matthew has a book called Pragmatism and Political Theory. Okay, so I thought we might begin by trying to get our heads around some of the sort of history of pragmatist philosophy and how pragmatism became to be a thing that we talk about in the history of philosophy. Paniel, can you tell us a bit about that maybe? Yes, Claire, thank you. Um, 
Well, um, I could start by saying that everything started off in the 1870s, more or less, at, in Boston, Massachusetts, and Cambridge, Massachusetts mainly. Um, there was a group of uh, lawyers, philosophically-minded lawyers, that used to gather up at what they called the Metaphysical Club. And it was um, the opportunity for some really bright students at the time to pop about and you know, discuss philosophical topics. And one of these people was the, the son of the, um, the uh, a very noted mathematician in Harvard University was Benjamin Peirce, and his son was uh, called Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, he was one of the important, uh, important personalities that will emerge in the history of pragmatism because he started the official sort of a logical principle where pragmatism is built upon. And there was, there was, another, there was another important uh, person that, who was uh, William James that became a very famous public philosopher. And some of the personalities like Oliver Wendell Holmes that was, was to become a Justice Holmes, which means that he was going to be the sort of... Um, uh, main uh, jury of of the of the American court. Um, so, cut the long story short, what was discussed there started to have a character of noting that practical consequences were very important in order to solve philosophical problems. And twenty years later, in 1892, as far as I remember. Um, William James published a little essay called Pragmatism, a new way to, for some old ways of thinking, a new name for all, some old ways of thinking. And in this um, little article, um, James proposed uh, Peirce's maxim as a principle uh, to understand and clarify uh, ideas and to solve philosophical conundrums. So was this book one of the first sort of big statements of yes. this? Okay. Yes, it was actually, um, the name pragmatism wasn't used before that. Um, it was used perhaps in, in the group, and he reports that it's based in the principle of Peirce. And um, but Peirce, uh, in 20 years earlier, published in 1878 a few essays in, in, um, in a journal called... Um, Oh, sorry, I can't remember the name of the journal, but uh, he published a few, a few uh, essays um, that were very important uh, to sustain this metaphysical uh, pragmatic maxim. And um, these, these essays were how to make our ideas clear and the fixation of belief. Um, so basically what Peirce proposed there was a maxim that was a principle for meaning. And if you allow me, I can give you a quotation where... Of this, of this first essay that he, he called the pragmatic maxim, and it was the, the center of this sort of pragmatic way of thinking. Yes, it, and it says like this, I quote, consider what effects which might conceivably have practical bearings we conceive the object of our conception to have. Then our conception of those effects is the whole of our conception of the object. So... Every, it's a principle for meaning because it means that uh, if you want to know what the meaning of a, an idea or of a conception or of, of, a, of a habit of action or a belief is, 
what we just have to do is draw the conceivable practical consequences of that. So it's, it's actually not exactly a principle that everything that works is true or everything that works is, is correct or right. But what we want to, to know is that whether a solution for the problem is adequate will be seen in the set of practical consequences we can draw from the conception we have of that concept. And William James applied this to what he called the philosophical temperaments. He thought that um, the history of philosophy had a, it was marked by different temperaments, uh, the tough-minded and the tender-minded. And what he thinks is that um, the, the pragmatic maxim brings together to a solution uh, different, different stances in philosophy. Um, but Peirce and James weren't the only ones that were influenced by this way of thinking. There was also John Dewey. And John Dewey is also a very important uh, public thinker of the time. He, he had a long li living life, and, um, and his pragmatism, pragmatism came to be known as instrumentalism. He wanted to focus in, the, in, in, in logic as a theory of inquiry. And what he proposes is that uh, we, are, we have to use uh, the pragmatic maxim to understand and indeterminate situation and determine the situation by interacting with it. So this is another take on pragmatism, and it was called, because of that, instrumentalism. There were other disciples of Peirce and James, um, such as Josiah Royce, for example, Josiah Royce uh, was a, an idealist thinker, had a very public discussion with James, and he proposed a version of pragmatism that he called absolute pragmatism. Um, and a disciple of him, see Clarence Irving Lewis, for example, applied this to Kant's way of thinking about the a priori conditions of thought and created conceptual pragmatism. So you can see that there is a there was um, a distinctive philosophical tradition that cropped up after this maxim or around this maxim. Um, but this came all the way down to sort of the public affairs as well. Um, and that's why, as uh, probably Clara is going to explain us, uh, pragmatism also became part of um, a sort of distinctive way of uh, pro promoting a democratic spirit. Uh, and um, in this, uh, maybe John Dewey is a very important um, person to, to mention, but also a disciple of Dewey who, um, and James, who was uh, Jane Adams. And she proposed, um, you know, that not also proposed ideas, but actions as well. And she demonstrated with, 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 with her theory of embodied care that we could also... Um, bring to, to really practical public changes uh, what, what we think in the, in the philosophical arena. So maybe that's a, a very sort of broad picture of what pragmatism was. But uh, it's important to say that there is a narrow sense of it that is based in the logical interpretation of that pragmatic maxim. And there is a, a broad sense that is more the attitude that all practical consequences are very important and they render us liable to what we believe or what we do. Thank you. 
So like, returning to the pragmatic maxim, so is it, is it a way of reframing questions about meaning? Uh, so we're not thinking about maybe a platonic discourse in which we fight over what the true meaning of something is, but it's a way of thinking about what we're trying to get out of discussions of meaning, or can you give an example of how they thought yeah, it might sure. benefit? Yes, absolutely. Interestingly enough, what uh, Peirce used, the maxim, the first hypothesis that Peirce used um, to, to try out the maxim was um, the hypothesis of reality, you know, whether, whether the outward clash of events that we see around us are actually reliable or, or not against the um, objection of the skepticism. He was very, very suspicious of Cartesian um, ideas that we need. How do we know, for example, that we're not dreaming this very moment or, or this very post Podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> demon podcast. Yes, exactly. Somebody is kind of fooling us into thinking that we're listening to something that is not other than the figment of our imaginations or something like that, or how do we know that other minds exist and things like that. Um, and Peirce wanted to try the maxim um, against this skepticism because he thought that the maxim will render us um, a useful way of... Um, be at the same time fallibilist, which means that we can uh, commit mistakes and the like, but also we don't have to be doubtful of everything else. You know, doubt is an irritation that comes from the external reality and not something we can do at, you know, as a whim or, or, or you know, out of, a, of an attitude of doubting everything. Um, a doubt is like the tickles, basically. Somebody has to do it to you, <laughs> and you cannot do it yourself. Well, I'll try it, but I can't laugh. <laughs> so, uh, yes, and the, the hypothesis of reality is that this maxim allows us to see that we don't need an, an absolute infallible uh, proof that reality is the case, but that we can trust our experience, because our experience is a continuous of consequences of the practical things we um, propose when we, when, we, when we believe that something is real. So, for example, it will be very odd for me to turn up to this uh, forum and be in my pyjamas, for example. You know, I could do it, but at the same time, it will be, I, I will know that the practical consequences of that will kind of, in a way, remind me that this is real and it not, not a figment of my imagination, as it were. Probably. <laughs> uh, so I guess my last question on the kind of the background, and I can open this up to you guys as well afterwards, is to think about uh, the motivations of these early pragmatist thinkers. So what did they think they were helping? I know Peirce talks a lot about science in the beginning. With James, you get discussions of religion in an interesting way. Does, I'm just wondering uh, if you want to say a bit about, like, did they come to a falling out, William, James, and, or James and Peirce, over what we should do with pragmatism or? Um, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> um, they, had, they had different discussions over the years, really, about these topics. They, they, they Perth, for example, complained that William James uh, didn't want to sort of get into logic because Perth wanted to prove uh, wanted a proof of his pragmatic maxim, and he elaborated several intents of, of proving mathematically his own pragmatic maxim. I, 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 I am part of a small 
group of people that believe that actually that he, he succeeded in proving his pragmatic maxim from mathematics. But that's another topic, really. And, and so James was actually more interested in having um, a way to reconcile religion and ethics and science. He wanted a, a, a sort of um, common language that could be explained with uh, the pragmatic attitude. And he has this famous um, metaphor of a, um, imagine a hotel with different rooms and it has a, it has a, 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 a sort of a lobby where everybody else is, um, meet up. They could be from very different backgrounds, but pragmatism is, is that um, sort of sitting room where they start talking because they, they are interested in some expedient uh, outcome. Okay. So James and Peirce had a very, very, very different interpretation of truth for starters, but, and if we bring Dewey to the picture as well, um, Dewey was also sort of worried not about um, finding theoretical answers to the to problems, but more practical answers to, to, to generate um, a more adaptive behavior to reality. Okay, thank you. Uh, and just um, to you, Clara, I know you're going to talk about Adams, and then maybe Matthew could say about um, Dewey as well, like what sort of sense of the project they would have had early on if we're thinking about how these thinkers were approaching mm. the future of philosophy, what sort of things do you think animated those two characters? Um, well, I think that certainly in Adams's case and maybe to a lesser extent Dewey's case, the primary preoccupation wasn't with, you know, which way is philosophy developing, but to, to which purpose philosophy is put, really. And for both Dewey and Adams, the purpose is to solve the problems of our day, essentially. Um, so really we're talking about social and political application of pragmatism. Um, like I say, to solve the problems of the day and to make society better. So that is encapsulated in, uh, in what we term meliorism, right? It's this constant betterment of society that Dewey and James try to uh, do theoretically, right, to come up with concepts that will, will help us do that, but also through action. And I suppose mm -hmm. pragmatism, and I'll be speaking about this a bit uh, later, is pretty unique in terms of the focus that it places on action and putting philosophical principles into action. So it is really a fundamentally lived philosophy. So I think that was their primary preoccupation. Okay. Well, I guess what I would add there, particularly thinking of Dewey, is only one thing just at the moment. So, I mean, Dewey lives a very long time. He's born in 1859 and dies in 1952. So he's born in the year The Origin of the Species is written and mills on liberty and before the American Civil War and dies during the Korean War. Of course, yeah. I'll, I'll do that if you... Is that better? Shout out if there's still a problem. Okay, very long-lived, lives through an enormous amount of change. Um, I think what's important for Dewey, to underline a point really Clara's making, is that the lived experience and the understanding of knowledge are one thing. Inquiry is a form of action. Inquiry is a practical activity. And that's particularly what Dewey takes away from Peirce, who has a different view person gets very cross with James, he gets very cross with Dewey, falls out with everyone, he's a very cantankerous person. Um, 
And in fact, he refuses to call himself a pragmatist anymore. He says, I will call my doctrine now pragmaticism, which is a name so ugly no one will dare steal this baby um, because he's so upset at what James and Dewey have done. Um, What Dewey did that particularly upset him, but what's distinctively Dewey in is he viewed inquiry as a form of practical action. We can talk more about that, but I I think it's important to underline, um, building on what Paniel was saying, that... uh, this, is, this tradition goes in different directions. There isn't a single thing called pragmatism. You'll be very hard put to find a set of ideas that all and only pragmatists subscribe to. You have a set of different directions springing from these ideas of Peirce and James and Dewey and others. Okay. Um, so at this point, I thought it might be uh, helpful to see if anyone has any questions just on the opening material. Um. <coughs> Yes, there's one in, oh, just one second, we have to wait for the mic to get over to you. Thank you. I'd just like to hear the maxim repeated. Yeah, oh, okay. So we're, we've been asked for a repetition of, of the maxim. Of course, yeah. This is from a document of 1878 that is called How to Make Our Ideas Clear. And it goes like this. Um, I quote, consider what effects which might conceivably have practical bearings. We conceive the objects of our conception to have. Then, our conception of those effects is the whole of our conception of the object. And I have another formulation now that maybe has been, um, there's an opportunity of saying it, that this is from about 35 years later, when Peirce was more interested in finding a mathematical proof of the maxim. And it goes like this, the entire intellectual purpose purport of any symbol consists in the total of all general modes of rational conduct, which conditionally upon all the possible different circumstances and desires will ensue upon the acceptance of the symbol. So this is is a more abstract version of this same maxim, but he wanted to rescue the, the things that we cannot do with what we believe. Um, but we can conceive as, a, as opposed to only, only, only do things with what we believe, but also to draw consequences that are not uh, actually doable to us, but we can still make into hypotheses. Okay. okay, I thought we might turn to the more ethical and political dimensions of pragmatism then. Um, so, yeah, Matthew, we've heard about the sort of origins of pragmatism in Boston in this metaphysical club. Um, Could you tell us a bit about how this becomes a sort of independent strain in political thought? Uh, Okay, thank you. Um, I think that pragmatism uh, is driven by a sense that our inherited political and moral ideas need to catch up with our practice. And that if you, you, you the lot, as we've said, different pragmatists have got different ideas. What they tend to share, though, is a sense that our society, our practice, is outstripping our inherited moral and ethical ideas. So how can we understand this sort? Well, a place to start would be um, with the idea of, uh, that Paniel mentioned of inquiry. So inquiry is a very important concept for Peirce, 
Um, it's a very important concept for later writers, later philosophers like John Dewey. We're, we are all inquirers, but being an inquirer is a practical matter. In other words, you set off for the beach, you encounter an obstacle on your route to the beach, a rock in the road, you have to decide what to do. Do you go around it? Do you go over it? Do you dynamite it? Do you give up your trip to the beach? Do you um, go to a different beach? Um, what you're doing then is inquiring, according to Dewey. That's the process of rational reflection on a problematic situation that you've encountered. And he thinks something like this is the kind of core characteristic uh, sort of paradigm model of what inquiry is really like. So what, when, what we do when we inquire is not attempt to accurately picture the world. What we do is try to solve a problem that we're encountering. Okay? So that's the first idea here. That inquiry is practical in this sense. It's problem solving rather than just picture, you know, come, trying to come up with an accurate description of the world. And this gives him a a certain view of ethics. He writes a couple of textbooks, a very long-lived person, so he runs through two editions, one in 1908 and one in 1932. And one of the things he says in these two editions of his textbooks and, and lots of other places that was really picked up by lots of other pragmatist writers is that our traditional moral ideas, um, you might know of utilitarianism or ideas of duty, so utilitarianism, the idea that we must promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number, or ideas of duty, that we must do what's right no matter what else, or ideas of virtue, that we need to act in a way that's socially approved of. These are all ideas that are in our society, he thinks. And we should view them not as rules we must follow, but as resources that are available for us. They all have historical origins. They were invented as ideas in particular times and places, and they've come down to us as ideas that we have in a toolbox. So when we encounter a problem, we don't know what to do. We use these resources, these moral theories, to address these uh, problems, to come up with a better picture of what's going on and a better idea of how to solve it. So... Moral inquiry is a matter of what us as agents working out how we can use all the resources we have available to find out what to do next. What follows from that is for Dewey, uh, somebody like Dewey, moral inquiry is no different from factual inquiry. There isn't a distinction, as we say, between fact and value. We are trying to solve problems, whether tr we're trying to work out what to do in our careers or whether we're trying to work out how to send um, a rocket to Mars. Those are both problem-solving activities. They are both entangled facts and values, and we use the intellectual resources that we have to um, come up with solutions to the problems in front of us. So this, then, is quite challenging for many, uh, for many of his contemporaries, because what it says is your valued moral idea is just a tool or resource just a tool or resource. And so pragmatists like Dewey um, run into lots of trouble with uh, people who are very committed to certain religious beliefs or people who are committed to very strong 
moral views that they, they don't like to see relativized in this way, thought of as just resources. If you have a picture of the world as organized around certain purposes, then you don't want to hear that that's just an idea that we can use or adjust or adapt in order to solve our problems. Um, I'll say one more thing, and then we'll see what questions, questions we have, um, which is uh, Dewey and pragmatists like Dewey are very keen on democracy. They're very keen on democracy. Famously, Dewey is a great fan of democracy. He says the, the cure for the ills of democracy is more democracy, right? Um, democracy is viewed as, in some sense, supported by and supporting this view of inquiry. Why? Why is democracy a kind of inquiry? Dewey calls it somewhere the method of organized intelligence. Dewey thinks that modern inquiry and democracy go naturally together because if you genuinely inquire, you aren't dogmatic. You are open to correction from any source, any source. You don't have an idea that a solution to a problem must come from some particular valid source. It's got, you must expose your ideas to the test of experience, which goes back to some thoughts that Peirce had, of course. You must expose your ideas to the test of experience. So you mustn't be snobbish. You must be open to whoever comes along with an objection to listen to their objection. Um, democracy, then, is deeply involved with this idea of inquiry, because if we're going to genuinely inquire, genuinely find out what's going on, solve our problems, we need to be, in this sense, Democrats and get rid of forms of hierarchy, get rid of forms of uh, a priori, um, the phrase came up before, you know, prior to experience, understandings of what we should do or what we should value and so on. And Dewey is, in fact, very rude about philosophers because one of the things he thinks philosophers do is make too much of the a priori because they make a living from it. Um, and he thinks one of the difficulties is that, um, I mean, one of the famous examples he has is he thinks the distinction between theory and practice is one that is inherited from Greek philosophy, which of course rests on a slave society. So if, you have, if you've grown up, if you're inducted into a slave society and remember when he was born, he thinks then you are very uh, susceptible to believing that there is a difference between theory, which is what people with the leisure to think about ideas have, and practice, which is the doing of things. So we'll work out what's to be done and then rely on other people to do the hard work. Exactly, okay. exactly, yeah, yeah. Not obviously here, but in other bad philosophy departments. Okay. So there's a, a, a kind of inbuilt, um, he thinks there's an inbuilt kind of cultural distortion that he wants to overcome by unifying inquiry, uh, separating, the, overcoming the separation of theory and practice in this, in this kind of way. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it seems like his engagement with the sort of ethical and political schools that come before, mm. is, is it sort of born out of a, a worry about their lack of flexibility or something? It's not about specific wrongs within the theories. It's about not making yeah. use of 
of more. <laughs> That's absolutely right, yeah. So he's not, I mean, one of the, the features of pragmatism, generally speaking, is it's not, as, as Paniel was saying, it's not a sceptical theory often. It's not a sceptical idea. It's not saying, let's get rid of everything that's come before. Let's treat it as, uh, you know, as invalid. Rather, what he's saying is we've got to put our traditional moral theories in the right place, right? Our traditional moral ideas in the right place. And his view of them mostly is as resources we can use, ways of solving problems. Um, but, of course, that's very challenging if you're a, a card-carrying believer in those ideas. And I'm betraying my own ignorance of the, of the stuff here, but was it a sense for Dewey that there were, you know, jurisprudence should be handled in a, you know, Kantian way, or was there, had he compartmentalise things in line with where, which particular ethical tools were best, or was it more uh, solving each case on the basis of the particulars of that case? Um, it was um, the second... Um, but the, what he wanted to say was that if you use these methods well, that is to say, if you use them, to use his term, intelligently, if you didn't use them dogmatically, they tended not to come into conflict. That was his um, interesting but, you know, weird suggestion that... Um, Really, you know, he, he was a great believer in the idea that if you inquired and investigated, you could come up with solutions to problems. And this is why people, I mean, to be clear, one of the problems people had with his ethical beliefs, I think I've suggested one already, which is if you're a card-carrying um, you know, follower of Aristotle or a card-carrying Christian, then you're a card-carrying utilitarian, then you're going to struggle with this idea that these are just ideas that come up in our society that we can use. But the other sort of worry that, that arose was that if you think that these ideas should be treated flexibly in this kind of way, that he was what his contemporary critics called acquiescence. In other words, what ultimately were you using to judge whether or not your decision to go to the beach or go back home is right? What ultimately are you using? And he worried that their critics rather worried that Dewey was ultimately deferring to custom habit, what people uh, or, or what powerful groups wanted. So there's a worry there that if you relativize moral doctrines, if you view them as all things as, as di a different a set of resources that you could use uh, to solve problems, well, what's really counting as the criterion for selecting a particular path? The worry would be the uh, consensus of the USA or the consensus of the powerful or something like that. I don't happen to think that's a, an accurate criticism, but it's a very important one in the history of pragmatism, which is often viewed as a kind of national philosophy of the USA. It's often viewed as a sort of, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a cultural expression of the, of the United States, and this is why. Is there a worry that, so, um, if each sort of ethical decision depends on the circumstances that maybe communities with more resources available will have a different moral standard. Can you say a little bit more about the criticism? Yeah, I suppose the worry is about, I suppose, about complacency. 
the thought is, what, what leads you to dream up a moral theory to begin with, right? What leads you to develop or hold a moral theory is the sense that you need some criteria to judge what's going on in your society or to work out what to do, what to value. Dewey is saying, what we, our moral ideas, our ethical ideas are a toolbox that we use to work out how to solve problems. So what counts as a good solution then? If it isn't meeting with a particular criteria, a criteria of a particular theory, you mentioned Kantian theory or utilitarian theory, if, it isn't, if that doesn't count as success, what counts as success? And the worry would be what counts as success is whatever that society lets you get away with. And that's a big, you know, sort of traditional worry about pragmatism, that it ultimately supports acquiescence. It supports the idea that a pragmatist goes with the flow, that he or she isn't sufficiently distant from and critical of her society. Okay, well on that note, I think we might see if there's any more questions again on this more political material. Okay, I can see two already, one there and one here. Sorry, just picking up on that last point, I think you were saying that critics feel that pragmatism sort of reduces to relativism and the choice between, or your selection between different moral theories is merely, merely sort of accommodates common consensus in the community. You did say at one point that you uh, disagreed with yeah. that critique. Could you explain why? Sure. Um, I think that Dewey has a response um, because of his in, in, uh, that is uh, tied to two things. The first is his commitment to inquiry. So one of the things you're not uh, one, of, one of the limits, if you like, on a successful outcome uh, is that it's got to be one that supports and sustains inquiry. It can't, in other words, squash a minority group, exclude it from. The, the, the common social discussion. And that's quite a powerful constraint. So in other words, if you're committed to inquiry in the particular sense that Dewey is, then there is a, there is a significant constraint on, um, on outcomes here. Second kind of answer is slightly more complicated but interesting, which is to say that I think Dewey isn't attempting to give a one-size-fits-all answer. He, I don't think he wants to say, and again, many pragmatists, they don't want to say, there is an answer that, that, of, to the question, what is the criterion we should use to make social decisions? What he does say is, if you're a liberal, you would do this. If you're a Democrat, you would do that. So it's up to you to say, well, I'm not a Democrat, so I wouldn't uh, allow people, you know, a majority of people to decide, or I'm not a liberal, so I would crush your freedom of speech. But, but what Dewey isn't trying to do is establish a universal a standpoint from which a universal justification of a particular moral theory can be provided. So I think there's a couple of things going on in, in, in his thought there. But thank you, that's a very interesting question. Did you wanna? I'll just, just, just to follow up, um, I think it's interesting in the history of contemporary pragmatism uh, two um, philosophers uh, who have talked about this 
topics, followers of two, each of them in their own way, um, uh, Rorty and Hilary Putnam, they had this big discussion about relativism just, just me- uh, that just been mentioned. And Putnam has a very f- pragmatic and funny uh, expression uh, to diffuse um, the kind of relativistic thinking that is confused with pragmatism. And he says, um, relativism is true for you, not for me. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if relativism is true, it has to be true for one of the relativistic persons and the other one is free of it. Yes. Okay, thanks. And then we have two more questions here, one here and one here, and I'll take them together and then we'll get the feedback together. Thank you. Um, it links in to what you were just saying, I would think, but um, in terms of seeing moral um, norms and things as tools that we should use, um, does that extend then to pragmatism itself? Is, is pragmatism in sort of a meta way itself a tool just to be used? Okay. Thank you. Thank Might you. be a short answer. That's good. And yourself? Thank you. Uh, hi. I was wondering, uh, Professor Festenstein, you mentioned rational and factual as like two qualifications of inquiry for Dewey. Um, now, many people derive their moral values from the sense of injustice. So I feel something is unjust, and then I come up with a theory that justifies my feelings. Um, is there any room for emotions in pragmatic thinking about values at all, since emotions are so important, seem to be so important in political situations? Okay, so that was, yeah, one question about sort of meta-consequences of norms as tools, and then one on the role of injustice as motivating. I'm sure you have something in a second. Okay. Um, well, should I say a little bit about this, but I, I don't want to step on anyone else's toes. Uh, so this may be a preview of coming attractions. Um, <laughs> if I could take the second question first. Um, it's an excellent question. I do think that, um, as it happens in how Dewey talks about this, but more generally it's the case, there is scope for um, an understanding of emotions in, in quite a... Uh, what's important, um, again, is that... Uh, is that emotion is distinct from affect. It's distinct from just a feeling. An emotion is directed towards the world and is more or less appropriate depending on what's going on in the world. And so this would be an example of, again, of a, 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 an area where um, there isn't a strong distinction between sort of factual knowledge and our evaluative response, that how we think about emotions we can talk more about that, but I suspect more uh, Clara may have something to say about those issues. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just but just to go, but if you're walking to the beach and you see a stone in the way, how you respond to that is part of your evaluation of what you should do. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a mysterious idea. Um, the other question is a really interesting one because. Um, the it's not it, it's a question that late some later pragmatists, and particularly Richard Rorty, who's been mentioned, um, take on um, quite cheerfully. Um, so Rorty very cheerfully says uh, he's got a sort of rather more radical view of all this, um, and he kind of quite cheerfully says these ideas work for us in the sense that people agree with them and they feel good about them and so on. Um, and that's true of mine too. So at no point, he doesn't want to say, well, 
it's true that what's true is what works. He wants to say, well, I'll suggest that and let's see if it works. I don't think that um, uh, earlier pragmatists were quite as insouciant as that. After all, it's quite important that all, mo- all the earlier pragmatists, at least the three we've talked about so far, were practicing scientists in different ways. They were practicing mathematicians, uh, geologists, uh, psychologists. Uh, Dewey was, was sort of educational psychologist some of the time. So I don't think that, you know, I think they, were, they weren't as relaxed as somebody like Rorty was about let's see what works. They did want to be uh, provide um, a disciplined account of inquiry and of how our values ought to be responsive to inquiry. Clara, did you want to weigh in on that specific topic of... I might come back to the emotion because I'll be talking about it in the context of uh, feminism. Okay, well, we might move in that direction now then. So um, we've heard a bit about the, the way pragmatist thinking can move in politics in general or political thinking and ethical decision-making. Can you tell us a bit about uh, how it can be used to think about feminism or how it can... Okay, so since about the mid-1990s, we've had uh, this kind of self-consciously formed field of pragmatism called feminist pragmatism or pragmatist feminism that really was spawned by Charlene Siegfried's famous book called Pragmatism and Feminism, Reweaving the Social Fabric. And in that, she sets out why it is that feminism and pragmatism work well together, just in terms of the... Uh, philosophical commitments, but also wider moral and political commitments of feminism on the one hand and pragmatism on the other. And really what she develops there and what feminist pragmatists since have have been further developing is uh, the application of feminist theoretical concepts that have been developing since about the mid-20th century or so to pragmatist uh, philosophy. So that is one strand of it. But the other strand of feminist pragmatism is looking at feminist ideas that were already present and feminist practices that were already present in the classical era, in the classical uh, pragmatists that we've already spoken about, like Dewey, like James, like Pierce. Um, And really a lot of this kind of second part, if you like, or the second uh, dimension to feminist pragmatism has been an unearthing of women who were involved in the classical period um, and also to look at even if there wasn't, you know, an explicitly feminist or um, women-focused kind of theoretical development of ideas, then is there any way that contemporary feminists can still utilize ideas from the classical pragmatists? So I might just mention two of the women who are very prominent from the classical era to you. One is Jessie Taft. She was a student of George Herbert Mead. And a lot of the women pragmatists would have been students of the established male pragmatists, right? So George Herbert Mead would have been one of those. Jessie Taft did her PhD thesis with him, and it was titled The Woman Movement from the Point of View of Social Consciousness. And Charlene Seifried, who I already mentioned, says that this is probably the first PhD thesis in philosophy on the women's movement. So we're talking 1913. So in that thesis, what does she do? She provides a reading of the self 
uh, in, in the context of the suffrage movement, and she develops George Herbert's meat of the self as a fundamentally social self. And Dewey would have had very similar ideas, uh, as would Adams, around this fact that we are absolutely fundamentally socially embedded to such an extent that we are constituted and constantly co-constitute our environments on our social uh, web, if you like. And I might just give you a, a quote from that thesis because it is so important, I think. She makes the argument in the thesis that women and men and society as such are in need of a race consciousness for women, right? And even the fact that she uses that language, consciousness, it's a very kind of contemporary uh, language that we now use all the time, really, in feminist theory. So in that she says, as long as women remain only partially self-conscious, the selves of men will never reach the full possibilities of selfhood, right? The selves of men. And society will never reach a stage of development with conditions favorable for the control of social problems. Okay, so what she's saying is that not only is uh, feminist consciousness and women's full consciousness good for women, obviously, but it is also good for men and it is also good and essential uh, for a betterment of society as such. So that's kind of coming back to this idea of meliorism, right? How do we develop better as people, as societies, in order to address the problems of our day? Um, the second person, the second classical feminist pragmatist that I want to mention to you is Jane Addams, um, she's very well known because she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Um, she was already a celebrity in her day. Um, uh, she set up Hull House in 1889 in Chicago in a really impoverished area of Chicago, mainly populated by immigrants. And Hull House became kind of a hub of activity for pragmatists, um, an activist hub, but also a philosophical hub. Um, and many people uh, worked with her there. She also lived there. Um, and basically what it was was, like I say, an activist hub, but I guess what we would today term a kind of community development uh, house or building, if you like. So the services she would have provided there to the community would have been childcare, educational classes, philosophy classes. Dewey came uh, to their philosophy club and gave lectures, um, sports facilities. Um, so this kind of, like I say, community development uh, was what she was engaged in. Now, the problem with the fact that she thereby kind of epitomizes uh, this idea of pragmatism as a fundamentally lived philosophy, the fact that she was also so active has, in, in retrospect, in terms of how she has been remembered, actually undermined her influence in a way in the philosophical canon because she has often been presented as a social worker, an activist, but not as a thinker. And that has been fundamentally problematic and has you know, resulted in this rewriting of the pragmatist canon, which now contemporary feminist pragmatists are trying to undo. Do you think it's related to what Matthew is describing as this sort of historical cleaving of the theory end of things and then there's the application? Yeah. And because she was living this new applied philosophy, all people could see was the applied? Absolutely. Dynamic. Absolutely. And also her, her writing is unconventional for philosophy, right? So she has 
strong commitments in terms of not speaking on behalf of other people, right? And in 20 Years of Whole House, which is this autobiographical book that she's written about setting up Whole House, she actually talks about herself in an earlier incarnation as the benevolent social worker who goes to see poor and impoverished people and very much this kind of top-down approach to community development, we'd say we'd call it today, right? Scientists sort of looking at the, exactly. at the specimens or something. Exactly. Whereas what she was trying to achieve with Hull House was a bottom-up approach, right? So if she went to events, if she went to uh, whatever was labor movement meetings, she always brought someone from the community with her. So it would never be a case that she was speaking on behalf of those she was representing. So like I say, very much a, a bottom-up approach. But yes, so that is reflected in her work as well. Um, so she uh, provides uh, quotes and stories from the communities, from the people that she was working with, and gave a voice to them, which is very unconventional for philosophical writing at the time. And I think that also contributed to her dismissal and the dismissal of her work. Um, so, like I said, she received the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 1931. She was a co-founder of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And I'm going to uh, just refer back to uh, a point that Matthew already made about this idea of, you know, the construction, the social construction, if you like, of various moral um, beliefs that we have. She was particularly afraid of Hull House ever being uh, labeled as, say for example, I don't know, a socialist settlement or this or that, right? So she never prescribed to a specific ideology because she always wanted to have her work be as inclusive as possible for everybody. And I might just give you a quote from her in terms of how she describes Hull House. She says, from its very nature, it can stand for no political or social propaganda. It must give the warm welcome of an in to all such propaganda, if perchance one of them be found an angel. Okay, so very much keeping her options open there, if you like. Um, but also not prescribing to one particular set of beliefs. And that caused her a lot of problems. Um, because people thought she wasn't radical enough, and this is a common critique of, of pragmatists, you know, are pragmatists not radical enough in the political sense? Um, and ironically, the one ideology that she did explicitly adopt, which was pacifism, she got really heavily criticized for. She warned against the US entering World War I, and like I say, she was a co-founder of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which still exists now. Um, and Dewey, at the time as well, was not on her side. Uh, he only later on realized what a terrible idea World War I had been, and that really she had been right about all of this all along. Um, so. Again, it was one of the rare times where she actually very explicitly was adopting a label, if you like. And of course, what is unique about her compared to the classical male pragmatists is that she incorporates women's experiences in her writing. Um, and like I say, there is this problem still in terms of what is attributed to her. So, for example, you know, Dewey and her worked very closely together. She gave lectures at the University of Chicago, which is where he was based. He came to Hull House and gave lectures there to, to the community. 
but it meant that there was a spillover of ideas and a lot of the time that isn't credited and she isn't credited. And actually one of the most famous sayings that is attributed to Dewey time and time again, which is democracy as a way of life, um, Charlene Siegfried through painstaking archival work has shown that actually it was Jane Addams who first coined that particular phrase. So those are just things to think about in terms of, you know, how do we remember pragmatism? Um, how do we define the canon and so forth? So that is a bit on the history of feminist pragmatism. Now to the contemporary utilization of pragmatism and this confluence of ideas. I think the reason many feminists are drawn to pragmatism is A, like I said, this is fundamentally a lived philosophy. Most feminists, most feminist thinkers are also activists, so that is why uh, there is a natural confluence there. But also in terms of the philosophical ideas that pragmatism espouses and that feminism espouses, and again we have to, you know, of course make allowance for the fact that these are very diverse and large schools of thought, but generally, um, many of the ideas that pragmatism criticizes, so for example, Matthew already mentioned, uh, you know, this eschewing uh, uh, of experience, right? So kind of armchair philosoph philosophizing, if you like, uh, and various dualisms, as Dewey calls them. They are also rejected by feminists, okay? So there is a bond in terms of what feminists reject and in terms of what pragmatists reject, right? And when I talk about dualisms, what I mean is that in the history of philosophy, we see these oppositionals that uh, are placed beside each other in hierarchical ways, right? So we have a mind-body dualism, right? These oppositionals. Uh, we have, someone mentioned emotion. We have reason and emotion. Uh, as an oppositional, as a dualism, yeah? And what we see throughout uh, Western philosophical thought is that one of each of those is usually uh, preferred, right, or is given higher esteem. So in philosophy, reason has always been given higher esteem over emotion, for example. Uh, the mind has been preferred over the body and so forth. And what feminists have been saying for many decades now is that the devalued oppositional of that has usually been associated with women, right? So women are associated with bodies, whereas men are associated with minds. So here you have then uh, Dewey, who very stringently critiques uh, this dualistic thinking and philosophy. Of course, he's going to be very appealing then to feminists doing work in this area. And Charlene Siegfried has called pragmatism for that reason a natural ally of feminism. Um, on the issue of emotion, just very briefly, because well, I might, I, I'm actually interested in this this uh, sort of disagreement over pacifism. Mm -hmm. So it sounds so interesting that there is this commitment to not having isms. So it's not a socialist house. It's mm. not a you know, it doesn't subscribe to specific ideologies in this way. I guess I'm wondering is it something that's a specific difficulty of pragmatism that when you have one principle that maybe we would all agree it's a correct principle, and now I'm sure not everybody thinks this about pacifism, but so they, Dewey and Adams came to disagreement over this, or can you say a little bit more about what happened on that? Because I think it would tell us a bit more about some of the specific difficulties maybe of, of pragmatism. Shall I say a quick thing about Dewey and then you can Go say a long thing about Adams, <laughs> um, which is this is um, one of... This is a huge historic moment in the history of the US left, 
when so Dewey was pretty prominent by this point. And when in 1917 he started, he, he changed his mind mm. and said, you know what, it's the progressive thing to do for the USA to intervene in Europe. Uh, this uh, divided the, the American left for a very, very long time. And in fact, still in sort of textbooks in the 1960s, people write angrily about Dewey, but it, it's traced back to that moment. I mean, Dewey got it wrong on a number of international relations issues. So he was, a, he was in favor of intervention in the First World War. And then when it came to the Second World War, wrote an article that called them, um, whatever happens, we must stay out. <laughs> um, so he, he sort of, history has not been kind on some of international relations judgments. Um, but it was, you, you know, very, and that was, that judgment around the First World War gave huge impetus to this idea that somehow pragmatism kowtowed to power. Mm. That when it came to the crunch, um, pragmatism, in Dewey's form anyway, was, was a doctrine that gave way to what the government Woodrow Wilson wanted to do. And, and you know, this, this sparked a big division on the American left and a big sort of tradition of criticizing pragmatism in, the, in this kind of way. Yeah, um, and I think that that is why a lot of people, contemporary uh, theorists, political theorists, uh, th there is a kind of tendency, I think, to want to push pragmatism to the left or to be outspokenly more left than it actually is. Not because it isn't left or because it can't be utilized by left-leaning people, far from it. You know, the activism that Dewey and Adams were involved in, they were promoting uh, causes, of course, like women's equality, uh, the equality of people of color, uh, international peace, women's access to education. In fact, most of the classical pragmatists were promoting uh, access to women's education, either by giving classes for free at night time or uh, giving classes to adjunct uh, women colleges. For example, in Harvard, it was Radcliffe. So pragmatists were involved in a lot of progressive uh, movements and activism and, you know, like I say, really lived this philosophy. But the hatred, not hatred is too strong a word, the concern of being labeled as something and then being pushed to adopt a partic particular moral or political framework was too strong um, to, to give into, I guess. That's really, that's really interesting. Thank you. Paniel, I wonder, do you have anything to add on sort of person James and the... Well, there's, there's um, I think, what the, uh, Clara and Matthew said about, um, you know, Tatui and, and Adam's relation is very important. He's also, he, he brought to my mind, um, was rem remembering the... That Dewey also was commissioned to um, inquire in, in the Trotsky case, and mm. he went to Mexico to mm. actually do inquiries about that. And mm. and um, it was very important that he um, he gave um, a re um, a report of this visit, and 
actually managed to change it just after Jane Addams read it. So that was a very important sort of mm. um, influence in the history of how mm. the Trotsky case went into the history. And unfortunately, he was killed um, mm. not long after that. But um, but it, it would have been made a massive difference. Uh, and this is just just to underline the the, the, the the important influence that she had yeah. in. Dewey. And James also has a, a lovely letter that he directs to Jane Addams where, where, where he says, um, we talk about ideas, but you bring them to practice. And, and mm-hmm. he, they, they seem to acknowledge this. And obviously, Mead was, was also very outspoken about that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, maybe there's... there's um, I suppose at this point in the panel we perhaps could uh, offer some some sort of general ideas of what pragmatism actually is in a broad sense because, um, you know, we've been saying really different different things and and, and my worry will be that they seem not connected enough. So probably one thing to just to recap out of what's been said is that one distinctive characteristic of pragmatism is the desire of overcoming not justified dichotomies or what we said in terms of dualistic thinking. So um, when when a dichotomy is not justified, it's important to sort of um, overcome that dichotomy. And because the dichotomies seem to block the road of inquiry, and this is a, also a common feature of pragmatism, that inquiry must be uh, carried out, out until you know the, the last limits of it. Um, there's another thing that you know um, I, I, I think is important to mention is that they, they all seem very interested in on, in stressing the dynamic aspect of experience. You know that experience is a rich um, concept, and is, it cannot be reduced to what the traditional sort of um, conception of experience as just the reports of my senses uh, reduces to. And in that way, um, for example, William James was a, an important follower of Berkeley, the famous British Irish empiricist, and. Um, but he, he, he calls his empiricism, in, in line with pragmatism, he calls it uh, radical empiricism. Mm. But, and with that, he tries to underline that when we experience things, even with our senses, we also experience the relations between things. And this gives um, an, an, a new layer of, a new depth to, to, the, to the reports that we give of our own experiences and other people's experiences including, for example, things that uh, are concepts, how they connect with emotions, for example, something that has been asked already. Um, so would you see this as another dichotomy, maybe, that in the history of philosophy, sometimes you have reason contrasted with experience, and again, this sort of comes out in the theoretical versus yes. applied sense in philosophy, but uh, it's part of the pragmatist project is to say that experience isn't just bumbling around the world. This is a very valuable... Yes. Part of your way of, yes. of knowing anything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, James has the famous phrase that we'll all know. He's, uh, he says that there is experience as blooming, buzzing confusion, but that's only for babies. Our experience is of a reality shaped by ideas, not just of a blooming, buzzing confusion. 
Yeah, there's a narrative there. There's a narrative. <laughs> okay. Any more questions at this point? Okay, lots. Um, right, can we take these three here? Uh, there's, yeah, this in the green coat, and then maybe passing back to the green top. Thank you. Um, I remember learning about Jane Addams as, as a child hmm. and as a, as a young girl that she, I believe, was born with a spinal deformity That's and right. her parents had been told not to even bother to teach her anything. Yeah. Um, but um, I also remember there was a point where she was vilified, I think, in maybe it was in the 60s, for, because Hull House was trying to Americanize the immigrants and why not let them have their own people have their own cultures within America? And why, you know, why teach them English? Why, te you know, and so there was that whole discussion thing going on. And I'm curious where that falls in terms of in pragmatism. And also, I have to ask, particularly after things have happened in the States yesterday, or this weekend rather, where does pragmatism and gun control? <laughs> okay. It's just, there's one more question right behind you to the right, and then I. I, I was just wondering uh, to what extent can we consider pragmatism a con continuation of the transcendentalist movement or a departure from, especially in regards to what Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and their conception of philosophy as a lived activity? Okay, thanks. And then just to the green there. Right, um, I, I was fascinated to find that pragmatists find it difficult to find themselves among particular political movements or activists being marginalized, which, which is a common tactics in politics as well. And I was wondering, have they, have they found themselves with libertarians in any way? Because I believe, I'm not a political scientist, but I believe that it is libertarians who advocate freedom of choice and freedom of association of any sort. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was three questions, uh, one on Adams and Americanization, and then perhaps on what we could say about what Adams would have to say about uh, certain approaches to gun proliferation, uh, the second on pragmatism and transcendentalist movement, and then the third on possible relations between pragmatism and libertarianism. Anyone? I have to say, I have to admit, I hadn't heard about the Americanization criticism. Um, I know that Hull House was continued after Jane Addams's death uh, and actually closed just recently, maybe a year or two ago. Um, so I'm afraid I haven't heard about that. On the issue of gun control, I think that if Dewey and Adams were alive right now, I think they would absolutely be strong, <laughs> very strong advocates of gun control. I'm just coming back to this uh, I, I just want to come back again to the issue of emotion. What both Dewey and Adams promoted was what they called sympathetic understanding. And what they meant by sympathy is essentially empathy, we would call it. Um, and they believed that, uh, like uh, Matthew already said, you know, they were big proponents of democracy, but the way in which to promote and pro protect democracy and our ability to live together peacefully and you know to be able to address the problems of our time is done through sympathetic understanding and I think uh, the issue of gun control should be understood through that concept I think that's how they would see it today Thanks. Thank you.
just um, about the whole house issue of Americanization of immigrants. I think um, she doesn't explicitly say much about it, but actually when one reads, um, I can't remember the exact name of the, of the work, it's about the democratic spirit. Democracy and social ethics. Democracy and social ethics. She, she, she has a lot of different examples of um, the, the traditions of Irish people, the mentions also African communities. And, and, and what she seems concerned about in those writings is actually to give them a voice mm -hmm. because she acknowledges the richness of their cultures. So I'll say, I'll, I'll be a bit, um, you know, skeptical about, about thinking that the, the whole house project had any of that sort of um, orientation, really. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm briefly on gun control. Um, why should the Second Amendment be sacrosanct is the, pra is the pragmatist question. Why should the Second, you know, wh why entrench things in constitutions that you can never change? That's the pragmatist challenge, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we're separate from a particular position on the issue. There's a general pragmatist opposition to entrenchment because entrenchment blocks the road of inquiry. Mm -hmm. okay, That's been the basic thought there. The whole house thing, can I just very quickly mention, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that we sort of touch on in different places here is, is um, something, you know, pragmatism is the name, as, as we kicked off by saying, of a, of a kind of philosophy that emerges in the middle of the 19th century and is still around in different forms today and deals with the problems of the, of the societies it grew up in. And so it's not surprising that sometimes uh, Dewey or Jane Addams or James, William James, is going to seem to be at the cutting edge, and at other times they're going to seem to be old hat. At sometimes their proposals to how to deal with urban poverty are going to be progressive, and at other times they're going to be looked back on as being uh, something that, that's outmoded. Um, yeah, because these are, these are ideas that grow up in and are developed in a particular society. I think what a, a, a smarty-pants pragmatist would say is that pragmatism has got an account of that, right? It's got an account of how inquiry is progressive and therefore particular ways of dealing with urban poverty need to be revisited. So again, it goes back to the same point about opposing entrenchment. Mm. Any thoughts on the connection between pragmatism and these two other sort of approaches? Yeah, yeah sorry, not to, I mean, I, transcendentalism is a really good question. Um, my sense is, as, as a historical question, that the um, idea of the, the broadened concept of experience that was very important for the, uh, the, the metaphysical club uh, in, in Cambridge in Massachusetts drew on um, the transcendentalism transcendentalists, but I'll say no more because I'll, I'll very quickly tip over in, into an area that I don't know enough about. Um, libertarian, again, it's, again, yeah, I mean, you see, my sense is that on libertarianism, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to too closely tie pragmatism as a, as I say, I've, you've, you've heard slightly different accounts of it here, right? Slightly different nuance, uh, nuance going in different directions. Um, emphasizing a theory of meaning, emphasizing lived experience, emphasizing inquiry. Yeah? Um, for my, on, on, on my end of the, the, 
the lineup. I wouldn't want to tie pragmatism in that sense as such too closely to any particular political doctrine, libertarianism, socialism, um, in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Can I just add to that? You know, Dewey, like Matthew was saying, Dewey lived near, for nearly a century. Um, and I, I do think it's fair to say that the older he got, the more, in a way, what we would term socialist he became. And he yes. definitely believed in redistribution of wealth. Oh, yes. So I don't think libertarianism would have been his... Oh, no, he opposed it, absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally agree. He, he become, he's a he's staunch critic of Roosevelt's New Deal from the left. Roosevelt is not sufficiently socialist. Um, absolutely, yeah. No, so, so, but I suppose I'm trying to separate out what we might want to call, you know, Dewey's beliefs, which is always an interesting question when you think about philosophers. You know, what beliefs mm. derive from their, their, as it were, core doctrines, and what beliefs are the beliefs they had about the world around them? That's always worth thinking about whether there are any differences there. So maybe this is a natural point to move to the thoughts on sympathy and empathy that might direct pragmatist thinking. Mm. So it's interesting because, like I said, you know, Dewey and Adams constantly return to this phrase, empathetic understanding. Um, But in terms of a fully fleshed out theory of emotion, James actually has the most comprehensive. And in the principles of psychology, he develops what then became known as the James Lang theory because at the same time there was another person called Lang who came up with a very similar way of thinking about emotion. And uh, James's conception of emotion is basically a physicalist uh, conception, meaning that he thinks that our bodily sensations are essentially the emotion. Okay, so he says there is no mind stuff involved in emotion. It is simply the physical changes, right? Such as, you know, I don't know, our heartbeat increasing, uh, sweat uh, forming on the brow, and so forth. So, the physicalist theory. Um, And Dewey, in a couple of papers, critiques that. Now, again, Dewey isn't very well known for his theorizing on emotion, but he says that there has to be some kind of cognitive process involved, right? And there we already see two very prominent theories of emotion. On the one hand, cognitivist theories, right, which which say that usually emotions are about something, right? We don't just have uh, emotions that come upon us like clouds, right? They usually involve some kind of thinking. Uh, And for James, that isn't the case. Like I say, he says there is no mind stuff uh, involved. Also, the major difference between Dewey and James in terms of emotion is that for Dewey, emotions are fundamentally social. Um, And James really doesn't uh, go into whether there is any social dimension, whether there's any intersubjective dimension to emotions. And feminists have been using, uh, contemporary feminist pragmatists have been using both those models on the one hand to propose this physicalist model and on the other hand to propose this cognitivist model. But fundamentally for many feminist emotions are about the social and they are, have to do with how we make each other feel, right? And they are of political import. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because at the moment in political theory and feminist theory and really a whole load of disciplines, we have what's been termed a turn to affect or a turn to emotion to fundamentally look at political questions and the role that emotions can play in helping us address those, right? 
So, for example, um, somebody mentioned the terrible tragedy in the U.S. just recently, um, and various contemporary nationalist movements that we've seen um, around the world in recent months and years. Many people would argue that what we see at play here is a politics of emotion, specifically a politics of fear and a politics of hatred. So looking at emotion is really important in the contemporary moment, and I think that pragmatists can help us do that. Okay. Can I sure. add something that takes us back to something Paniel said at the beginning, which is, um, I, 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 th- I think that's, that's a... I agree with all that. Um, doubt is an emotion. Um, and to go back to that, that early idea, the, we can be filled with reasonless doubt or reasonless fear. Um, and one of the things pragmatism says is you need a reason for your doubts, just like you need a reason for your beliefs. It's the same thing, same process. So we... Traditionally, sort of, as it were, classically, philosophers like Descartes, who, who mentioned before, emphasize you need a reason for your beliefs, but less so much you need a reason for your doubts. Doubts are things you just sort of entertain. Um, and the idea that doubt is something we need a reason for, we need to justify, in the same, in the, in the same way we need to justify belief, I think connects up the, the early concerns of somebody like Peirce um, with what Clara is saying about fear. In other words, we, uh, one of the things that I think pragmatists direct us to is scrutinizing those emotions, working out where they, whether they're appropriate. Is this just a, um, Peirce's wonderful phrase was a paper doubt or a tin doubt. It wasn't an authentic one. You wouldn't really, you would, you're just being, um, if you're, you're, you're entertaining the idea that maybe this is all a dream. You don't really think that. You've, as he said, you've, we've all dressed, you've all dressed to come out nice and warm. You know? You're not really thinking this is a dream. It's a paper doubt. It's a tin doubt. It's a false idea. So pragmatism directs us to interrogate those fears and doubts that we have. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I feel there's a strong connection between the questioning Clara is, is encouraging us to undertake in relation to some of the contemporary uh, public emotions and some of the early concerns about scepticism that uh, Peirce has. I would just like to add um, something that that I said very little about and is the, perhaps the importance that pragmatism has um, in the history of science. And I, I, I like to say this very briefly because I think uh, one of the most surprising Things about the 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 the, the life um, of this tradition is that it's actually still affecting contemporary scientific inquiry, and particularly. But I, I like to draw the attention to the physicists that um, are theorizing at the moment. They seem at least two of them, which uh, one of them is very famous, Higgs, Peter Higgs. A Scottish, a Scottish mathematician, and um, Lee Smolin, an American-Canadian um, 
physicists, they, they, they both seem to be very fond of uh, the pragmatist maxim in the, and the way they go about uh, having an interpretation of it is that what do you do in science nowadays is, is it could be really hardly to achievable in a, in a laboratory. If you go, you know, you, want, you have a conventional lab and, and you want to discover the Higgs boson, it'll be very difficult, really. Um, so in a way, what do you do uh, in those circumstances? And what they like to exercise about the pragmatic maxim is that you prove a theory by drawing all the possible consequences in a diag diagrammatic fashion that can be drawn from that. And what do you do is you offer, you know, like side effects or experiments that indirectly will, will lead up to the to the corroboration of that um, line of thought. Mm -hmm. But this is because beliefs and scientific concepts are not interpreted as pure concepts, but as habits of actions, habits, habits of expectation. Mm -hmm. And in this way, um, it's also very sort of um, fertile to help mathematics, because lots of mathematicians, what have done in the last few um, decades is to exercise this kind of hypothesis that if you want to draw um, a proof, what do you do is you exercise all the all the all the consequences that you can draw from a from a very promising intuition that you might have, but it, you don't have to have a perfect definition of that intuition. What you can do is you can exercise drawing it to the last consequences as symbols, and that's why I like to sort of just just draw back to the second second formulation of pragmatism because it, it, it meant that it was it was an exercise that we could do. Up, open the symbols that form our thoughts. Um, just, just an extra thing that I would like to mention because surprisingly, pragmatism seems to be still very lively in the scientific community. Okay, thank you. And I feel like that puts us in a good position now that we've discussed almost every element of the consequence focus of pragmatism, just to take a final question or two from people. So let's see people I want to ask before you here in the Navy and then... Anyone else? And, okay, and then in the in the centre here afterwards. Hi, yeah, uh, it's been a really fascinating uh, talk. I wonder, I'm still slightly wondering, like, what's what's the difference between uh, pragmatism and common sense? You know, are, are, there, are there situations in which pragmatism leads us to kind of uh, what's the word, things you wouldn't uh, immediately think of? Counterintuitive, thank you. Uh, conclusions. Second okay, question. thank you. And then just, oh yeah, here. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, how pragmatism is going to help with uh, the politics of emotion because I tend to see working out how to do things, working out how to solve things as a way of getting away from all this polarised emotion it's rather than for and or against what's the problem how can we try and sort out the problem? And mm -hmm. I do think if everyone had to go, some things would prove practically possible, but I tend to think of, it's called doing what works. I tend to think in terms of working out how to do things, which involves the imagination and trial and error and trying out things. And uh, I'm not quite sure if I've got the question Right, but it sounded like it was going too much into 
emotion rather than looking at the practical as a way of trying to get rid of these emotional polarizations and such like. Okay, thanks. So we have about three minutes to try and handle. Is there any real difference between pragmatism and just common sense? Uh, and then maybe a quick defense of how emotions can fit into this picture of, of doing what works. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, the link between pragmatism and common sense is actually made very strongly in the first book that uh, uh, Paniel referred to. William James sort of refers to it as a lot as common sense. He wants to make pragmatism seem like common sense. Um, I, I guess where it isn't common sense, I'll just try you with two quick suggestions. One is two philosophers. Um, for whom some of the distinctions that pragmatists are keen on overcoming are very important, for example, between theory and practice, experience and reason and so on. So if you say all these things are just sort of things we, we, we work out in practice, that actually um, you know, causes a small explosion in various other areas <laughs> of thinking. Okay, so one way in which you know, it, it has, it, it, there is a sort of uh, a consequence there. I think the, another way, though, in which perhaps it, it does push against common sense is that I think many of us will think of our profoundest beliefs as being incorrigible, uncorrectable. And that's something pragmatism challenges. If you don't block the road of inquiry, your most profound belief, of which you are the most assured, is potentially subject to correction and change. So that's not common sense. Um, it, perhaps, yeah, or, or at least it's not obviously common sense. Um, secondly, on emotion, I think that's a, a really good point. I mean, I, 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 I'm probably one that I, I will I'll defer to my colleagues on, except to say it sounded to me that you've at least um, you, you, you've got the message from us right, because all your language about imagination, trial and error, seeing what works, sounds like you've come to the right um, talk. And that you, you, you know, either you, either you came as a pragmatist or we've managed to induct you into the community. So thank you. Just to let. It, it can. So. The, the, idea that, the idea that, as you say, that pragmatism can be used as conservatives, by conservatives as the name of sort of common sense, practical philosophy is, of course, quite right. But I, I hope one of the things we've tried to do is suggest some alternatives. Um, but, but you're quite right. That is a way people use that term. Mm -hmm. okay, just a bonus wee point about the question of um, common senseism. They, the, the, the classical pragmatists... They all were fervent readers of the Scottish School of Critical Common Senseism. So there's a lot of connections in that regard, but of course there's the important differences and they come down to what, what is not really very sort of, what, what can in common sense uh, hamper the road of inquiry? Yeah. Just very briefly on the emotion versus doing things. Um, I, that wasn't the impression I meant to give at all, right? Because like I said, pragmatists are inherently anti-dualistic so it's not a matter of emotion on the one hand and doing things on the other hand it's more a matter of analyzing why is it that certain people do certain things in the way that they do and what motivates us a lot of the time is how we feel and that can be politically manipulated 
So I think in order to establish what it is we need to do to counter certain things or to address certain problems, we need to look at how certain people feel and how they are made to feel in certain ways. Okay, thank you so much. And sorry to be pragmatic, but we do have to end at this point <laughs> um, because the mics will turn off. Um, but thank you so much for coming. And just a quick reminder that we have another forum event next Monday on dance and philosophy. So thanks very much.